Good evening. Thanks, everybody, for coming uh, to the last installment of the ABCs of Socialism series. Uh, I'm Jason Farbman uh, from Jacobin Magazine. Uh, we've been really excited about how this has all been working. We're very grateful that everyone came out. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people say that had Bernie Sanders defeated Hillary Clinton in the, in the Democratic primary, that he would have gone on to beat Donald Trump. This is something I think a lot of us have heard, that Bernie would have won. Um, that today, you know, in March of 2017, we'd be uh, living, we'd be watching the Bernie Sanders administration's first 100 days unfold, right? Uh, you know, and there's a question, right? So what would that actually mean? Would we be living in, in socialism? Would we be on our way to socialism? How long would it take? Uh, and, you know, if, if so, why? If not, why? And I think these are, there, there's reasons we have to ask these questions, not to talk about the merits of the Bernie Sanders administration that could have been, or the first 100 days, or what you can accomplish, but sort of to understand what the horizons are that we're, we're striving for. Um, if we think that electing Bernie Sanders would have actually yielded socialism, I think that suggests a set of tasks for socialists you know, along one course. If we think that, that, that ele elect elections is one aspect and there are other avenues that we have to pursue, that suggests a number of other tasks. And I think that as socialists, particularly in the small position that we're in, we need to think about where we want to go long term and sort of have that inform the decisions that we're making uh, here and now. So I think the question about whether socialism does or does not equal more government exclusively is an important question. It's what we're taking up tonight. We'll, we'll have Chris Maizano here to, to take this up. He's the one who wrote the chapter, uh, Isn't America Already Kind of Socialist? from the ABCs of Socialism, which is a, it's a book that the, the Bhaskar Sankara and the editors of Jacobin Magazine compiled. It's a series of essays taking up uh, important, commonly asked questions from people who are coming around to socialism and people who have been around a little bit who, are, who still want to sort of grapple with some of the, the more fundamental questions. So I'm really pleased that Chris is here with us today. He's a contributing editor uh, at Jacobin who's been writing uh, for us since the very first issue, some fantastic pieces. Uh, he's also a union staffer in New York City. But every time I, I read one of his pieces or, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in, in one of the Jacobin Brooklyn Reading Group breakouts with him, I find it incredibly enlightening. I think he has an ability to sort of step back and draw out what are the, 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 the key points that we have to start considering so that we can actually grapple with the, the bigger questions. Um, so I'm really glad he could join us here tonight. Uh, we'll have Chris uh, speak for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have a quick discussion, him and I. Uh, and then we'll turn off the camera, let the folks at home uh, go do whatever they're doing, and we'll have a longer discussion here uh, with the audience. So with that said, I just want to thank Verso Books. They not only published the ABCs of Socialism, which is on, uh, over here on, on sale as people leave, but they've been hosting this event. They've been running the live stream. We're really very grateful for them for their participation, um, and we're really thankful that, that Chris Maizano could come and present on his chapter and, and speak with all of us tonight. So let's welcome. Here, here's Bernie here at, at the lectern. I don't know if this was done on purpose or, or not, but... Here. Sorry, Bernie. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Jason for hosting, uh, Jackman for inviting me to speak, and also Verso for uh, offering the space. It's a very nice space. We appreciate it very much. Uh, for, uh, here at the outset, I just want to say that I'm going to do everything I can to make my talk tonight at least as controversial as the talk that happened here last week. Uh, so, so strap in. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a ride. I'm kidding. It's not gonna be that exciting. Um, so as winter storm Stella advanced on the city a couple of weeks ago, a profound sense of dread came over me. Uh, that's not because I'm, usually, I'm unusually fearful of snowstorms or even snow shoveling. Uh, I quite enjoy the snow, as a matter of fact. 
Uh, I was anxious because I knew what was coming in addition to the snow. It was the mountain of socialist snowplow memes on Facebook and Twitter that I knew were heading our way. A socialist snowplow just went by my house. Will the tyranny never end? Oh, look, snowplows, evil socialism at work. I'm, uh, I'm sure you've seen all of these. Uh, they're so stupid and unfunny, I just cannot stand them. Uh, I, I feel kind of embarrassed to admit to all of you that outrage at dumb liberal memes was the thing that inspired me to write my article on the state for the ABCs of Socialism book. Uh, but it was. Uh, I'll take my inspiration anywhere I can get it. Uh, there was plenty of inspiration along these lines during last year's presidential campaign when the presence of a self-described socialist uh, in the Democratic primary race, race launched a thousand memes purporting to show us all the ways that the United States is already, in fact, a socialist country. There are so many different variations on this theme. It's kind of amazing, actually. It's like a, a testament to humanity's creative spirit. Uh, so I, I, I think the best one was put out there by People for Bernie, and, and it's the one that I single out and kind of pick on a little bit uh, in my article. Uh, at, at the heading uh, at the top of the image says socialist programs in the United States, and, and it's followed by a dizzying array of government agencies and activities. Uh, I actually counted them up. It's 55. I'm going to read them to you. These are the socialist programs in the United States. The Department of Agriculture, Amber Alerts, Amtrak, public beaches, public busing services, business subsidies, the Census Bureau, the CIA, federal student loans, the court system, dams, public defenders, disability insurance, the Department of Energy, the EPA, farm subsidies, the FBI, the FCC, the FDA, FEMA, fire departments, food stamps, garbage collection, health care, public housing, the IRS, public landfills, public libraries, Medicare, Medicaid, the military, state and national monuments, public museums, NASA, the National Weather Service, NPR, public parks, PBS, the Peace Corps, police departments, prisons and jails, public schools, secret service, sewer systems, snow removal services, uh, Social Security, Public Street Lighting, the Department of Transportation, USPS, the Postal Service, Vaccines, Veteran Health Care, Welfare, the White House, the WIC Program, State Zoos, Hashtag Feel the Burn. So there you go, the 55 socialist programs in the United States. So the only commonality here is that Uncle Sam is the person doing all these things. And indeed, Uncle Sam is right there on the image, pointing and staring at us in that weird and unsettling way that he has. Some of the things in the list directly serve uh, social needs, uh, and some involve some measure of income redistribution. Some seem thrown in for no good reason at all. Others are basic operational activities that any modern government, regardless of its political or ideological orientation, would carry out. And still others involve the vast apparatus of coercion and force. The FBI somehow gets into this list as an example of a socialist program. For all of Bernie Sanders' virtues, and there are many, uh, his campaign for president didn't really help us address or clarify these issues. Uh, at one campaign stop, he seemed to endorse the thinking behind the most simplistic of, the, of these memes. He said, when you go to your public library, when you call your fire department or, your, or the police department, what do you think you're calling? These are socialist institutions. So by that kind of logic, any sort of collective project funded by tax dollars and accomplished through government action uh, is socialism or a form of socialism. Uh, to me, at least, I think it's not difficult to see the problem with this line of thinking. 
in a country as deeply and reflexively anti-statist as the United States, uh, the, identifi- the identification of socialism uh, with government is perhaps the worst possible rhetorical strategy the left could adopt. Like the DMV, you'll love socialism isn't a slogan that's going to win us many followers, converts, adherents. More importantly, conflating all government action with socialism forces us to defend many of the most objectionable forms of state activity, including those that we want to abolish or get rid of in any kind of free and just society. To me, it's one thing to identify public libraries with socialism. The idea, they operate according to democratic principles of access and distribution, uh, providing services to all regardless of one's ability to pay. They would be one of the most important institutions in any kind of socialist society worthy of the name. But it's quite another to include the police. If the forces responsible for killing Eric Garner, Marley Graham, Sean Bell, and so many others exemplify socialism in action, then I don't think any kind of person who wants freedom and justice should be a socialist. The idea that any government activity is synonymous with socialism has major political and strategic implications for us on the left. After all, if our country was already at least partly socialist, uh, then all we would have to do is keep gradually expanding government. We wouldn't have to change the purpose of any existing government programs, nor would we have to reform the administrative structures of government agencies, of the state system. And because all of these purportedly socialist programs have been won without fundamentally fundamentally challenging private property, there would be no need for a break with the owners of capital and their political allies. All you'd have to do is keep electing sympathetic politicians to office and let them keep legislating their way to even more socialism. So let's look at some of the major government interventions or expansions that have happened under recent decades. Some of these have even taken place under Republican presidents and governments. The Under Income Tax Credit, Medicare Part D, Obamacare. None of these interventions did much of anything to strengthen the power of workers or to undermine uh, the power of the market over our lives. Now, these are all big and expensive programs, uh, and many people have benefited from them to some degree. Uh, The expansion of Medicaid uh, under the Affordable Care Act Act in particular, I think, stands out in that regard, and that's something that survived the Trump administration, at least for the time being. But these and other programs still provide disproportionate benefits for capitalist interests. Let's take the earned income tax credit. The EITC does help a lot of low-wage workers, but... It's also an indirect subsidy for low-wage employers. Medicare Part D offers some subsidies for low-wage seniors, but it's widely uh, viewed as a costly giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, You know, you could just ask my mom about the donut hole in the program that makes her and millions of other uh, seniors, Medicare beneficiaries, responsible for a big share of the cost of the medications that they rely on. Whatever its other benefits, the heart of Obamacare is a multi-billion dollar subsidy for the insurance industry. That's what the mandate is. That's what the, the, the exchanges are. The point is that the sheer size or scale of government spending alone tells us very little about the political content or the political direction uh, of state action. So what accounts for all this? Why is the game so rigged in favor of business? For one thing, the rich and powerful invest very heavily in political activity to promote their interests and block progressive reforms. So through their political spending and the influence that it buys, they have been able to shape tax and other policies for their own benefit, and that's an advantage that's reinforced by favorable judicial decisions like Citizens United and and others that are less well-known, as well as their ongoing lobbying activities. 
According to a widely noted 2014 study by two political scientists, the political dominance of the wealthy is now so pronounced that average citizens exercise, and this is their words, near zero influence over government policymaking. Um, I think it's also worth noting that um, representatives, people from the middle and upper classes, also hold many of the most important posts in government, whether they're elected or appointed, uh, and that they tend to share a common set of interests and values predicated on defending the system as it is and protecting it against challenges, wherever they may come from, but I think particularly against those coming from the left uh, and from below, uh, from workers, from the poor. So these direct forms of influence are not the only way that powerful interests shape government action. Uh, the tax revenues and the debt financing uh, that governments rely on to fund their activities uh, are directly related to the state of uh, the capitalist economy, its rates of growth, and profitability. If the level of eco uh, economic activity declines, perhaps because capitalists are not happy with reforms that benefit uh, workers or other popular interests, uh, the state will find it increasingly difficult to fund its activities, which in turn uh, has the opportunity or has the chance of hurting its standing in the court of public opinion. It has the potential of, of delegitimizing it in the eyes of the public. Because private capitalists maintain control over investment, uh, they have a very, very powerful card to play when they think government policy runs against their interest, even if it's not actually in their interest. They just have to think that it is. Often, if capitalists aren't induced to make investments through business subsidies or other incentives, they'll just simply refuse to invest. In some cases, they would still do that investment anyway, even without the incentives. So the case of real estate development in here in New York, I think, offers a very good example of this. Uh, the, the developers, uh, the, 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 the investment companies, uh, they're still able to get the, the, the subsidies or the incentives anyway, um, and legislative efforts to end or at least reduce them often come to nothing. Uh, if you've never heard of New York's 421A um, tax exemption program for real estate development, I suggest that you check it out. It's, it's pretty egregious. The city spends billions of dollars on it every year. The companies don't need it to do the investment. They get it anyway. Consequently, there is a strong tendency for politicians and bureaucrats um, in the state to align their policy decisions with the interests of capitalists in the private sector. Preserving what uh, a lot of people call business confidence is a major constraint on the formation of public policy, and it's one of the main reasons why government action is so favorable to capitalist interests. It's also how they're able to kind of conflate or identify their own interests with a larger public or national interest because under a capitalist system, there's some truth to that claim, because we're all dependent on income and employment uh, from capitalists in order to make ends meet, unless you happen to be a, uh, one of the lucky ones. In the absence of popular organization and militancy, government action is going to do little to shift the balance of power away from capital and towards labor, or to undermine market discipline instead of deepening it. So simply electing politicians to office, or watching the government expand by its own momentum or initiative, um, is not and never will be enough. Economic power is political power, and under capitalism, the owners of capital will always have the capacity and the ability to undermine popular democracy, no matter who's sitting in Congress or the White House. Now, I don't want to create the impression that winning progressive reforms under capitalism is completely impossible or doomed, because that's clearly not the case. It's happened before. But these kinds of reforms have only been won on the strength of direct mass struggles against employers, against the state, against other powerful institutions. I hope we're going to have some time to talk about this question in the Q&A session. I think we will, uh, because it's one of the most important questions that we face as socialists, 
And I think that is definitely the first question that we would have been uh, forced to answer uh, had Bernie Sanders actually managed to become president, as Jason uh, talked about in his intro. So in order to withstand the inevitable backlash from capitalists, uh, capitalist and conservative forces, any kind of socialist government, whether it's Bernie Sanders or any of the other examples from history where socialist governments uh, and politicians have been elected, they would need to draw on mass popular support and direct participation uh, in the affairs of government by, by the people, by the people supporting these movements, by the people supporting these parties. This would entail not only creating more democratic organs of government, but it would also entail uh, dramatically overhauling uh, the state agencies and administrative structures that run the government every day. Now, this is something that I think we on the left very often overlook, not because it's frankly kind of boring. Uh, it's much more interesting, I think, and fun to study almost anything else that you could possibly think of uh, than uh, the civil service or the organizational structures of government agencies. Uh, do, does anyone in the room read the chief leader mag, uh, newspaper? Two people. Two people. I was expecting almost less than that, but, but two people. So the Chief Leader is a, is a newspaper. It's actually extremely rare. It's one of the only newspapers in the country, I think, at this point, that covers labor on a regular basis. Uh, it covers the civil service system and public employment. I, I, I think it's great, but I can understand why someone's eyes would glaze over at reading stories about civil service exams or administrative law. It's just, it's just not for the faint of heart. So in my article, I briefly mentioned that uh, public service employees and their unions might play a key role in the process of transforming the state. This is partially because the strategic location of many such workers in the state system or in the government gives them the capacity, potentially, to support or impede, either openly or through more kind of subterranean methods, uh, the implementation of public policy. Uh, and this is kind of a variation on a point that Vivek Chibber made on his first uh, talk about the power of workers in, in the first uh, segment in the series. In my mind, the rather remarkable opposition of many federal workers, union and non-union alike, to the Trump administration's policies so far gives us a glimpse of the kind of leverage that often goes unused uh, in this arena. And to me, at least, I think it's interesting to talk about how the civil service, how government employees, how federal workers would have reacted to Bernie Sanders if he had been elected. We also need to think about the role, um, excuse me, uh, yep, sorry. We also need to think about the role of public service employees and their unions in transforming state structures, not only because they've got the leverage to do so and we're interested in that, uh, but because they have, in many cases, a direct interest in doing so. In many respects, this would dramatically improve the quality of their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis. I mentioned public libraries at the beginning of my talk as a positive example uh, of government action. Uh, the prominent Marxist theorist Eric Olin Wright, who I believe actually also has a chapter in the book The ABCs of Socialism, he often likes to talk about public libraries as uh, what he calls an example of a real utopia because the distributional practices of these kinds of institutions embody the principle of to each according to need. But as someone who's worked in the public library system here in Brooklyn, I can tell you that working in one doesn't always make you feel like you're in a utopian space or a utopian setting. <laughs> Many patrons of the library... I hope there are many of you in this room would probably also say the same thing if you've been in one recently. So while workers' struggles in the public service don't necessarily take on the same forms uh, as their counterparts in the private sector, I think many of the issues that motivate them are still the same, or at least they're very similar. So when I worked at the library, my coworkers and I had to deal with de-skilling, we had to deal with job combination, arbitrary discipline, bad management, 
a lack of participation in the setting of organizational policy. The list goes on. Any of the things that you would encounter working anywhere. Most of us went into the public service to serve the public, and we did get to do that to a significant extent. I have a lot of fond memories of my time working as a young adult librarian in Bensonhurst. I'm not trying to say that the library is terrible and that you should stop going there, boycott it, burn it to the ground. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Quite the opposite. The point is that despite the positive social goods that the best examples of government action provide, their internal structures don't prefigure the kind of society that all of us want to build. They too need to be transformed. So in a socialist world, public schools, welfare departments, planning agencies, courts, and all the other government agencies that you could possibly think of would invite workers and the recipients of these services or activities to participate in the design and implementation of those services. A revitalized and reformed public service union movement or labor movement could play a key role in this process or this project, organizing both the providers and the users of public services to radically transform the administrative structures of the government. Just kind of want to put like a concrete example or an idea or demand on the table here to kind of flesh this out. Why shouldn't public service unions open up their collective bargaining sessions, not just to their workers, which they should do, and many don't do, uh, their members, but also to representatives of the people who use the services um, that are offered every single day? Uh, I think this would be a very good way to both get out in front of the attacks that are happening uh, against the unions every day, many of which entail proposals for open bargaining, but I think it also can show uh, the public at large, the community at large, that unions don't just care about their own members' needs, their benefits, their working conditions, their pensions, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so yes, if we want a socialist society, if we want a socialist world, the public sector needs to be big, it needs to provide services, it needs to be well-funded, but I think if government of the people, by the people, for the people is going to be a, a reality, those organizations, those structures, uh, those services also need to be transformed. So with that, let's go to the questions. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was, that was really great. I, you, you cover a lot, it, both in the chapter and, and in the talk just now. So, I, so I'm not asking you stuff that's uh, sort of new, but I want to you know, maybe dig into a couple of the things that you, you raised in a little, little bit more detail. Um, so, okay. so let's imagine Bernie was elected. Right? Yes. <laughs> I have. <laughs> oh, wait. Is this on? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's imagine Bernie was elected. It's, you know, we're in the first 100 days of the Bernie Sanders administration. We're looking you know, out at, at Bernie Sanders now controls you know, the U.S. state, the U.S. military, the most powerful military in the history of the world. Right. Yeah, and I mean, the suggestion here, you know, it's, it's sort of embedded in the arguments that you make that it's, that doesn't automatically make socialism. That you, you say we, that there needs to be a decisive confrontation with the owners of capital and their political allies, right? So just, you know, I, I think you got it a little bit. I just was hoping that you could say a little bit more about, like, why does Bernie Sanders being at the helm of all this not automatically mean that our lives will sort of be transformed in the way that, that, that we would like them to be? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. I, and I, I, I've thought a lot about this over the last couple of months because I do think, you know, this is impossible to know. It's pure speculation. Many people say, oh, Bernie would have won. Bernie would have won if he had been up against Trump. I think that there's probably a pretty good chance that he would have won for a number of reasons that we can or don't have to get into uh, tonight. Uh, but yes, he would have faced an, a number of extraordinary difficulties in seeing through many of the most basic aspects of his program, whether they're a single-payer health insurance or any of the other things he, that he talked about on the campaign trail. 
you know, not to mention the fact that he's coming in, he would have come into possession of, as you uh, pointed out, kind of the imperial state, the military, the FBI, the police, all the other things mentioned in the 55 uh, socialist programs uh, that I talked about before. Um, why wouldn't that necessarily have resulted, you know, on Inauguration Day in socialism or, or even kind of a movement in the direction of socialism? I think there's a, there's a few things to it. Uh, one, the state of the left and social movements in this country is extremely weak. Um, I think that one of the reasons why Bernie was able to make such a splash uh, in the race and give Hillary a run for her money is precisely because, you know, as he lays out in his book, The Outsider in the White House, which is a Verso book that everyone should purchase and buy and read, um, he was able to build up his own kind of personal political machine or organization. Um, he's very much been a one-man band for all of his, his virtues, and he hasn't really put a premium on organizing a movement, organizing, putting together organizations uh, that go outside of the government, go outside of the electoral system to organize people in masses uh, to support many of the things that he's called for. So he, I think he probably would have been extremely isolated. Many people in the Democratic Party would have been opposed to the things that he would have wanted to see through, not to mention probably everyone in the Republican Party in Congress. And he would have had to call on a vast popular movement to put irresistible pressure uh, on the government to pass what he wanted to pass. I think it's pure speculation to um, make an argument that you know maybe from the top, from his kind of perch at the kind of pinnacle or the apex of the state, he might have been able to kind of summon that movement into existence by calling on his supporters and other people to, to do the things that would have been needed, that, that would have had to be done. Uh, but I don't know. I'm skeptical that that, that would have happened. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if we have much of a kind of historical record, at least in the United States, of examples like that happening. Uh, there's just sort of no way for these sorts of calls to translate into sustained mass organization and struggle. Um, you know, we don't have uh, working class parties. We don't have unions uh, to a very significant extent in many parts of the country. We have a pretty substantial labor movement. I use the term loosely uh, here in New York City, but you know, it's largely a residue of a previous period. A lot of members, a lot of people aren't involved. It would have been hard. Um, and I think that in order to kind of go beyond that, I mean, he would have been required, the people supporting him uh, would have been required to go beyond a lot of those limitations. Um, they would have had to go beyond kind of the sort of uh, social democratic um, vision that or, or kind of demands or kind of approach to doing politics that's focused only on, mostly on running elections and winning elections um, are all about. And I think you can look at any number of examples from Europe, Latin America, elsewhere where you know socialist politicians, socialist parties get elected to government, but because um, they haven't gotten at kind of the fundamental sources of capitalist power, which are not located in the government, they're located in the economy, they're located in society, they run into resistance um, from the people that would stand to lose from the policies that they would want to implement. So you know that can include just capital flight. It could include uh, you know kind of a, the, the, all the other means that that uh, powerful interests in a society like ours have uh, to undermine that kind of government. Um, or it could even include like what happened in Chile, which is you know kind of a bloody coup. Um, you know, getting rid of uh, the government that's tried to see through some kind of transition to a socialist society, a socialist system, a socialist economy. So it, it, I think it really would have required a lot more than what was already in place uh, at the time of the election uh, 
to really see these things through. Again, maybe you know you can spin a counterfactual where like his presence at the top brings forth a movement from the bottom. Maybe that could have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm skeptical, but I think it was worth kind of trying to do it. I was very supportive of, of his campaign. I knocked on doors. I made phone calls. It was the right thing to do, uh, but it would have been it would have been hard. So you were just talking about some of the things like Capital Flight and what happened in Chile, et cetera. I want to maybe visit that a little bit because I think it's important to, you know, it's, a, it's sort of easy to observe that all things being equal, the state tends to act for capital and against workers. I mean, that's, and those things are related, but it's, it's pretty consistent that, you know, for capital against workers. Um, you know, I think, you know, when Barack Obama was elected, uh, you know, he, everybody loved him. He seems like a nice person. He tucks his daughters to bed. He's probably a sweet, sweet human being. But he did prosecute the, the bailout, right? And, and as you were saying, the, you know, the ACA, which was a massive handout. Um, so I, I guess I wonder about the mechanisms uh, of, of control that capitalists have over the government, just to get into that a little bit. Because I think on one hand, you have people who say that the state is this all-powerful force that can make capitalists do whatever they want, or they can act sort of outside of that. You know, this is sort of like what Trump seems to, to think. Then you have other people, you know, the way this gets framed is like the, the, the ruling class constitutes a cabal that meets underground somewhere and like plans out the next couple of years together, and that's like the capitalists and the state together or whatever. It seems to me that, that just like the anarchic nature of competition under capitalism itself, right, like you were saying about business confidence, that there's something embedded in the system where if people think, don't think it's in their interest, they're going to you know, leave or whatever. I'm just hoping, wondering if you can talk about a, little, a few of these mechanisms that force the state to act for capitalists and against workers unless there's this, this, this you know, other power. Sure. It's a good question. I think a very kind of important theoretical one uh, for people on the left to address, uh, people in the Marxist tradition and outside of it as well. Um, to me, kind of the most uh, effective or persuasive accounts of this sort of Situation are those made by you know somebody like say Ellen Mikesons Wood and others that kind of posit or make an argument for uh, kind of a uh, kind of a division of labor, kind of a separation between uh, you know say the ruling class and these are capitalists who are owning things and kind of making business decisions in the private sector uh, and kind of uh, you know the political class or the state managers that are elected to government, they're appointed to government, they're running agencies, they're doing those sorts of things. Um, I don't think that the kind of model or, or the idea of like a cabal kind of meeting behind the scenes or underground making decisions really applies. Although, look, sometimes like thing, things like that do actually in fact happen. But I don't, I, I don't think that that's kind of the kind of main structural mechanism by which these things sort of take place. I think they happen more along the lines of what I was talking about, um, you know, earlier and then also in the, in the article, which is that, you know, the state you know, it doesn't generate its own. It doesn't generate its own sources of income by and large. It's mostly dependent on taxation, on going into the capital markets to raise funds, to fund itself, uh, to to kind of keep everything going. Uh, and you know, those two sorts of uh, kind of teams uh, running running the show need to kind of work together in their own respective spheres, and you know, at times make decisions together uh, to 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 keep everything going. Um, I do agree that historically the, the kind of way that this works is that the state is relatively autonomous, as some people put it, from capitalist interests. It's not like, you know, capital walks into a room and says, do this, and then everyone says, yes, please, yes, sir, and then they, they go in and do it. There have been periods in which, for I think for many reasons, and we can talk about this, you know, the uh, state managers, state actors, politicians have had more leeway, more independence 
to make decisions to implement policies that have been in the interests of the system as a whole, uh, even if individual capitalists or individual interests think it's against their interests. In my view, one of the reasons why that situation has existed in the past is because the left has been strong, the labor movement has been strong, uh, and it's kind of broken up uh, in previous periods the close association, relatively close association between the government, the state, and capitalist interests that I think that you see now. Um, I, I think that the, the, the presence, the direct presence of people like Donald Trump, I still can't believe that he's the president of the United States, Rex Tillerson, all these other people that are like direct representatives of capital in the kind of the upper machinery of the state, to me says at least that that, that situation of autonomy has been attenuated, it's shrunk. I think that's a function largely of the, the erosion, the defeat, the decline of the left and the labor movement. Um, but yeah, I, by and large, I think that under capitalism, there is that division of labor. Uh, business does its thing in its sphere. Government does its thing in its sphere. They have to make decisions jointly in some capacity. But yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not kind of a crude sort of people walk into a room and give orders and you must do this. Uh, I think there are kind of more impersonal and, and structural mechanisms at play that mostly have to do with the fact that, yeah, under capitalism... Economic activity, all that sort of stuff happens in the private sector, and it's done by capitalists, and the state relies on it. And so I, I think this is an important point because this separation – I mean, if we were to think about the total unity of the, capital, the U.S. capitalist class combined with the U.S. state, combined with the U.S. military, which is the most you know, powerful military in the world history, we're talking about like, – the things don't look very good for our side. No, I wouldn't. That, that sounds horrible and terrifying. Right. If that was the case, then, you know, I, I, would, just, I would just pack it up and leave. Right. Yeah. You know, I'd live my life somewhere comfortably and not have to worry about these things. So, I mean, I, I think the good news is that, that that doesn't exist, right? And so the, w when we say all things being equal, the state will act in the interest of capital. That's, you know, barring the, the presence of a counterweight yes. sort of from below, from working class struggle. And, you know, we, we've seen more about big protests in the past, you know, five, five ten years but the history of mass working class struggles winning things is sort of not on most people's mind. It's like a history that's more or less invisible to most people. Right. And the, the media certainly doesn't help us with that, right? I mean, when any piece of legislation gets passed or whatever, they, you know, it's the, there's a huge distance made. You know, there's no mention made of the protest. There's no mention made of struggle. But it's usually the benevolence of, of an individual, right. uh, you know, Democrat or, or, or other politician. And then when people do get together for protest, it's usually covered either as like, what are these people doing, wasting their time on a Saturday, or, mm, right. you know, or they're blocking traffic, or they're going to cause property damage. You know, so, like the coverage tends to focus on, on some, you know, as if it's a mania, right? right. So, you know, I th can you talk about a few examples when these progressive reforms were won through mass, through mass struggle? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Before I directly address uh, the question, I kind of want to come back to a certain extent, to the previous question, and kind of talk a little bit about conditions under which I think I think it gets at both conditions under which you know gains of progressive reforms might be might be won. I think over the past few decades, there's been a remarkable um, unity. Uh, I think be, uh, within capital, both domestically uh, and then between you know capitalist interests across the world. Um, you know, I, I think ever since the 70s and 80s. You, I, I think, you know, they're fighting over time, all the time over questions of policy, over trade, over, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you don't see the sorts of uh, kind of, I think, all-out conflicts between different sectors of capital, either domestically or between countries that you would have seen 100 years ago. 
Uh, and I think that the, the relative decline in those sorts of conflicts or disagreements uh, or splits uh, within, um, within that class have made it extremely difficult uh, for uh, social movements, for political movements, uh, to make gains. Because if the other side is united, if they don't have any major disagreements, then it's much harder, I think, to wring concessions out of them. I, I think that there might be a possibility with what Trump seems like that he's serious about and might want to do, that he might actually start opening these kinds of fissures, mm-hmm. uh, both within the country, between sector, sectors and sections of capital that are more internationally oriented, that are more interested in trade uh, and selling their stuff in other countries, and those that are more interested in making and selling things at home. And I think we see a lot of this over his tax uh, proposals, which... I think may be in jeopardy at this point, but at least as they were kind of initially formulated and talked about, um, you know, we're really pitting domestically oriented firms against internationally oriented firms. Um, And also at the same time, raising the possibility of increased conflicts between the United States and other countries through trade and tariffs and all this kind of stuff. Conflicts that have, you know, they still exist, but by and large, I think have been subsumed through these international institutions like the WTO and the kind of global system of trade and what have you. I think the fact that these are now kind of these conflicts may be now on the table could potentially open up some open up some opportunities for popular movements to make gains. At the same time, you don't want to see you know the United States risking trade wars with China because trade wars tend to be followed by shooting wars, mm-hmm. uh, and in the 21st century, you do not want to have a shooting war between the United States and, and China. That would not be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's, I think, a, another question that I think we can talk about. It's like, historically, these are con- the conditions under which the left has made gains in the past. Are they off the table now? Or if they're not off the table, do we even want those conditions to come back because the potential con- implications of them are so bad? In the past, I, you know, I think the main example of like movements creating the opportunity for progressive reform, like the one that's always stu- it's been studied to death, and there's so many articles and books written about it, is you know, labor reform legislation during the New Deal. Mm. Um, yep. There are all different kinds of schools of thought on this. I think in general, the, the, they break down between uh, schools that focus primarily on the election of Roosevelt and huge Democratic Party majorities, uh, and kind of changes in the electoral system as creating the opportunity for the, this flurry of reform to happen. And then there's another school that points more towards um, all the popular and social movements that were taking place at the time, the leading one being you know, the industrial workers' movement, the labor movement, uh, huge strikes, like near basically military conflicts playing out on, this, the, on American streets in years like 1934, the Flint sit-down strike in 36, 37, all that sort of stuff. So traditionally, I think progressive movements have made gains during periods in which there's conflicts between sections of capital, and that was happening during the 1930s. There were all kinds of fights over um, how you know, the international order, how the domestic economy were going to be structured in the midst of the Great Depression, and who was going to win and who was going to lose. Uh, all of that happening in the midst of this like, massive upheaval from below, happening in the context of you know, the biggest economic collapse we've seen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that there's kind of two, two things at work. Are there splits among the people that have power? Because if there are splits, it's easier to win concessions out of them. And then are there movements from below, you know, electing people to office, because I think that we need to do that. I'm, I don't think that we need to abstain from electoral politics entirely. But also, you know, are there people organizing? Are there people on the streets? Are there people making trouble? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those two things together... 
um, have tended to be kind of the way in which these things have happened. If one or both of those things are missing, I think the chances of us making any kind of significant gains are not high. <laughs> they're, they're pretty low. Okay, so I guess my last question is, is what's to build on that a little bit? So I think the argument that you make is very convincing that we're not going to achieve socialism just by having the government spend more or big, become bigger programs by expanding government. So I think the, it's also the case, and, and say if you think this is wrong, but that, that we're not going to either just win reforms from below in a piecemeal way and then all of a sudden we have social, I, socialism. So like, we're talking about a major just transformation. We've talked about this in earlier sessions about the difference, you know, what a socialist society might look like versus a capitalist society. And you know, I don't, we don't have time to get into it right now, but I mean, we're talking about a massive transformation. And so I guess I, I'm wondering if you could explain, because I think you, 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 we, we, like it's absolutely true that reforms are necessary, both you know, in the now, like to, to win things. But like also, how does that, how does the struggle for reforms and what you're talking about build towards a, a struggle, an anti-capitalist struggle, a struggle right. for socialism? Yeah, I, I think that's an important question. I think, and this is one of the oldest arguments on the left. It's been going on for at least 100 or more years. Uh, it's not resolved, uh, as, many, as most things uh, aren't. Um, but I think that, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I think that the basic contours of the, of the argument are, are still uh, the same, more or less. My own view is that there are a lot of people that make the argument that, like, you know, you need to win some small victories here and there to kind of raise people's confidence and that they kind of add up uh, quantitatively uh, to something bigger, that they kind of raise people's spirits and, and they mobilize people and they, they push them on to do greater and bigger things. I'm honestly not sure if that's really how it works. I mean, my own, you know, if history is any guide, then I don't, I don't think it necessarily works that way. I think that we tend to see periods of reform happen in relatively short time frames, in big bursts, um, and they don't tend to happen, you know, primarily by electing people to office, uh, stepping back out of the ballot box, letting them do their thing inside the state, and then, then you have some reforms and everyone's happy. Um, you need to elect people. You need to, you know, kind of displace the forces within the government that are against the reform. You need to displace the forces within the bureaucracy and the state sector that are not going to implement it if you pass it. Um, but at the same time, unless you've got, you know, those masses of people organized, moving, making trouble outside of the state system, outside of the government, it's much easier for the system to change the people that go in. Mm -hmm. uh, than it is for them to actually change the system once they get in. Mm -hmm. And I think just the nature of people's lives, the nature of people's abilities to make change and to be involved in these kinds of struggles under capitalism makes it necessarily episodic, makes it necessarily just come in waves. Um, you know, you can't be permanently organ mobilized. You can't be out in the streets all day, every day, mm -hmm. um, organizing for for socialism and calling for, you know, the overthrow of capital or something. It just, it doesn't happen. Um, people have lives to live. Um, and I think that, you know, the experiences of things like Occupy Wall Street really showed that. It's like there were people that could afford and were able to be there every single day camping out. But the vast majority of the people that, you know, make the society run every single day, they couldn't be there all the time. They, they just simply had, st they had stuff to do. Uh, so I, I, I think these things are ne necessarily episodic. They necessarily come in waves. Um, they happen in bursts. And, you know, you wind up winning things that are not 
full-blown socialism, but you know, are reforms that both make people's lives better and point in that direction, not simply by the kind of gradual, kind of like electoral and peaceful, completely peaceful, non-confrontational route. It has to happen through, um, you know, kind of th- those methods as well. People outside the system organizing, causing trouble, and being disruptive. That's the only way it can happen. Uh, I don't see any other path uh, to that at all. It's just, it just won't work. Awesome. Thanks. I think there's a, you know, a, a lot uh, in the talks. I think there's a lot that we can hopefully draw out in the Q&A. Uh, we're going to let the folks at home go now, and we're going to kick it back to Q&A. But let's thank Chris Manzano for this talk. Thank you.